She's Lois. He's Superman. Lois and Superman. Where are we? Oh, let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Romans 3, 9b. In Romans 7 also, we're going to do a surprise raid into the center. Father, we pray that you'll allow the Son of Righteousness to rise in this place through your word. And that you'll allow us to waken up, wake up so that Christ can shine on us from his word. And so that the light that shines in his face will radiate into our hearts and out from our hearts to a generation that so desperately needs your grace and kindness. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight the service, the title of the sermon will be The Bellwether. B-E-L-L-W-E-T-H-E-R. And a surprise raid. We've been doing pincer movement from the flanks. We're going to do a surprise raid right into the center. Romans 7. I'm going to pull a few of these surprise raids into the center of Romans as part of our interpretive strategy. We are approaching the epistle of Romans from a uniquely universalistic standpoint in which there is a vision, an apocalypse of the universal saving power of God in the crucified Christ. What is a bellwether then? The word derives from a Middle English word or term in which there, it's bellwether spelled with an E in here, bellwether. And it originally described a castrated male sheep who wore a bell around his neck. And he was the leader of the flock. Perhaps in the movie The Ten Commandments you saw that the key scene in the movie, the one with Cecil B. DeMille produced, a bellwether signals the dramatic turn in the direction for Moses and the people of Israel. The little bell on the neck of the sheep and then the burning bush incident where Moses confronts Yahweh and Yahweh reveals himself to Moses and tells him about his salvific plan for Israel and for their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now, bellwether has come down to the present day with a metaphorical meaning of one that serves as a leader or as a leading indicator of future trends. We have in the interpretation of Romans certain phrases that I consider to be bellwethers because they lead or give a signal of something to come, a trend that builds to a crescendo in Romans, a very significant crescendo. And so with Romans 3.9b, where we left off last night, the second half of 3.9, and we will have it in print 
And it will be, in fact, on org pretty soon, by probably before May. The translation of Romans 3, 1 to 9, we negotiated some pretty tricky territory last night to see where the teacher is talking that Paul is opposing and where Paul is talking. It's very tricky terrain, but I think we were guided fairly accurately through it. With Romans 3, 9b, though, we have a bellwether, which is an indicator of a trend in Romans that I call a universal homardiology, universal homardiology, the theological term for sin, homardiology, the study of sin. And here's what Romans 3, 9b says. Because we have previously accused everyone, Paul now uses the first person plural in his argument because he's saying you and me both, teacher, we both are teachers of the Old Testament scriptures and both of us in the past, you know this well, have accused or charged all human beings, whether Jews or Gentiles, to be under the power of sin. Here's where we begin to think apocalyptically. And I'll explain a little bit about what that means. So what I call the bell weather, which is the sound of the bell on this sheep who leads the flock... It's a three-word phrase extracted from that verse. The Greek phrase looks like this. We'll do it because it's Thursday and we let all of the stops on Thursday nights usually. Pantas, which is one of the key words in Paul. In Romans, it's used in various forms 75 times. It means all. Pantas accent here, P-A-N-T-A-S. I'm not going to write it out in the English transliteration. Pantas, and then we have the word U-P-H, which is really... Hupo, and U-P-H, because the next word starts with the letter A, really. So here we have pantas, hoof, or hupo, and then we have the word hamartian, which is the word for sin, oof, and then H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A-N. There's a hard breathing here, so it would be hamartia, hamartia. Pantas, Paul says, everybody, all, inclusive of all humanity, whether Jew or Gentile, he says, all are under, hupo means under the power of sin. Now, I capitalize sin, as you'll see in the, written parts of these messages, because it is a power that is superhuman. It is a superhuman power. Hamartiology is the study of sin. It's a theological study of sin. Paul's hamartiology is a universal one. That means that every human being in Adam is under the power of sin, or they were under the power of sin. And sin, therefore, is a superhuman power. No human being has the power to extract him or herself from that power. And it means that not only are people enslaved to sin as a superhuman power, but they're also complicit with it. They also cooperate with that power in their own will. There is no way 
that any human being can work their way or will their way out of that power. That's why we're going to do a secret raid into Romans 7, into the first six verses, which will prepare us for a speech in character that I'll do in a few weeks. Romans 7, 7 to 25 is what is known as a speech in character. And it has to do with someone who is under the power of sin, but who also is under the law or Torah and doesn't want to be complicit with sin and really wants to fulfill the law, but finds themselves doing against their will what sin tells them to do, not what the law tells them to do. The reason for that, as we're going to see, is even Torah, the law, was hijacked by sin. The Torah that was designed to orient people to righteousness, hijacked by sin, orients people to sin. It agitates the sinful nature in man. The Adamic ontology is given further impetus by it. And so that's why I think we need to jump over to Romans 7, which we'll do. And all we're going to do tonight is get to the prelude of another speech in character. If I still stay with the plan for Sunday morning, I may hit another speech in character that will be, just to prepare you, the most controversial of all of Romans, that the most controversial teaching that I'll do in Romans. Probably, I don't want to say all the way through because we're not all the way through yet, but there are several places in Romans where Paul isn't doing the talking, but he's allowing someone else to speak so that he can use that in a response to that person. The example so far we've seen is 118 to 32. There's also a speech in character in 7, 7 to 25 of a person who doesn't want to be complicit with sin, but is still even unwillingly becomes the slave and becomes complicit. You can see it. You've read it before. When I try to do good, evil is present with me, and I do the evil that I hate. I don't want to do it, but I do it. That's a person who's under the law, just as much enslaved to sin under the law than the Gentiles are without law, the outlaws. The outlaws and the in-laws are all under sin. And so, again, here's the bellwether. Pantas hupo hamartian. It means all under sin. Hupo indicates a power. That's apocalyptic thinking. All under sin. In the text, it's followed by the verb... E-I-N-A-I, which is the present active infinitive of amy, or amy, which means to be. Both Paul and the teacher have charged all human beings to be under the power of sin. And Paul allows a cascade of verses to come from 3.10 through 18 to reveal that. Most of them from the Psalms, but others from the law, from the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. There's a universal Hamartiology. There is none that does good, not even one. There's none that understands, not even one. All together, all have gone away from God. All of them, all together. They're under their tongue is the poison of cobras. They lie. They steal. They, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a universal hamartiology. 
can't will your way out of it. You can't work your way out of it. And you can't believe your way out of it. It is not of him that wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Romans 9, 16. And that's the mercy that he shows to all in 11.32. To be under the power of sin, therefore, is two things. It is to be in helpless slavery to sin as a suprahuman power. Secondly, it is also to be complicit with sin. That is, it's willing or unwilling cooperator. So this three-word phrase in Romans 3.9 is the sound of the bellwether, the bell around the neck of the lead sheep, one who becomes a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God, one who is not meant to breed but to lead. That's this sheep and the bellwether around his neck. The gentle sound of this bell then indicates a trend in Romans that I call a universal hamartiology. A universal hamartiology means that simply that all humans, whether Jews or non-Jews, were under a power that is simply too strong for them. Now, there's a lot of complex doctrines we're getting into in Romans, but the bottom line message of Romans is quite simple. It's, let's use another analogy, when the sap is all boiled down, you get a very quality and sweet syrup. It's a very simple message. It's a Christological, universal, salvific design of God. And the power that it has is not only liberating, but transformative. And it not only liberates us from slavery to sin, but even from complicity with it by the Holy Spirit. That's the simplicity of this message. Sin as a power from which helpless humans must be delivered through a greater power. That's the simplicity of it. Sin is a power from which helpless humans must be delivered through a greater power. And that's a bellwether of apocalyptic thinking. Apocalyptic thinking is concerned with the invasion of a power greater than sin. Forget all the stuff you've heard about apocalypse as a disaster coming into history. Forget all about the Tim LaHaye's and the Hal Lindsay's and the dispensationalists who teach about a rapture and a seven-year tribulation and call that apocalypse. Forget about their views of Armageddon. Forget about it. Apocalypse is defined most explicitly in Romans 1.17, by the gospel, God's righteousness, which is a universal act of deliverance in Christ, is apocalypsed. So apocalyptic thinking has to involve a universal homardiology, which yields very smoothly and necessarily to a universal soteriology or a Christological, Christ-centered Universal salvation. 
Now, I know that's a more explicit speaking than I did in Revelation and much more explicit than I did in the Gospel of John. But that's okay, because I want to be clear. I don't even like to say that. I want to be clear. That's what politicians say when they're ready to lie. Now, let's be clear. Or clearly, yeah. And people say it on politics, political shows, and they say it on hate night TV. I mean, late night TV, they say it everywhere. So, apocalyptic thinking is concerned with the invasion of a power greater than sin, to deliver those who are enslaved and either willingly or unwillingly complicit, but complicit they are with the power of sin. That invasion is nothing less than a divine invasion. The divine invasion is a rescue mission which occurs in two phases. First, the sending of God's Son by the Father to save the world. The second is the sending of the Spirit by the Father and the Son who will be poured out on all flesh, liberating and transforming. This invasion is into, it's an infiltration into the evil age to deliver us from this present evil age, as Galatians 1 forces, a very apocalyptic statement. One thing we're doing here in this, from this pulpit is training you to think apocalyptically. Now, here's an illustration of it, apocalyptic thinking. Jesus illustrated it. Jesus was an apocalyptic thinker. Not just in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Luke 21. He was an apocalyptic thinker throughout. Listen what he says. Read it on your own because I'm going to just encapsulate it. He illustrated apocalyptic thinking in Luke 11, 20 to 22 in connection with his acts of driving out demons, which he did a lot. In fact, the coming of the kingdom of God is the driving out of demons and all powers that are superior to human beings and that enslave human beings. So he had just expelled a demon from a man who was incapable of speech. He couldn't articulate. He couldn't speak. His accusers surrounded him, as always, and they charged him with that, with casting out demons by the power of Baal Zebul, not just Beelzebub, but Baal from the word Baal in the Old Testament, and Zebul, the prince of demons. You're casting out demons by the prince of demons. Now, Jesus showed the absurdity of Satan casting out Satan. And if you find what, we, what you see in our culture is political solutions are just one set of demons driving out another set of demons. It's, it's just one form of evil trying to drive out another form of evil. And it's developed in political parties. I have a hard time affiliating with political parties because it's, well, I don't want to get into that. It's tempting to get in to make political statements, but it's, A, stupid to as a preacher. I don't, that's not my thing. I don't, I, I like what uh, Clint Eastwood's son, Scott Eastwood, said. He said, I don't do politics. 
unlike his father who became the mayor of Carmel. So he's his own man. Now you say, do you read all this stuff? No, I can't help it. Sometimes I'm reading a news thing and it pops up. Scott Eastwood said, like I care. I don't really care. But that was a pretty good saying, so I stick with it. The The divine invasion, as we've seen, is two divine missions. But when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the power of Baal Zebul, the prince of demons, he proved the absurdity of this charge, but then he told a mini parable, we might call it, a miniature parable of a fully armed strong man, he says, who securely possesses his property until a stronger man attacks and overcomes him and defeats him, strips him of his arsenal, and his property, and he divvies up his property. So what he's illustrating is what is required to defeat the power of sin and all demonic power is a stronger power. And he's the stronger man. He's the son of man. He's the stronger man that attacked the house of the strong man, spoiled him of his weaponry, and took away all of his prisoners which were prisoners to the fear of death. So what is required to defeat the power of sin is a stronger power, the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus announced this, therefore, in Luke eleven twenty, if I expel demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Political solutions to man's problems are like demons casting out other demons. One regime has an e- is, is evil, and another evil regime casts out the other evil regime, or it offers new political solutions. Political solutions to man's problems are like demons casting out other demons, but the kingdom of God is the invasion of a divine... I could even go into a lot of... I could fan this out to a lot of things like self-help books. How to drive out the sin nature by methods of the sin nature. How to overcome Adamic ontology by Adamic ontology. This is a different thing here we're talking about. The Christian spiritual life is a higher integration of human living that involves powers that are superior to the supernatural powers that have held us back, held us down, and held us enslaved. The kingdom of God is the invasion of a divine power to defeat the superhuman powers of demons, principalities and powers they're called, of sin, of death. If you're beginning to think like Jesus in Luke 11, And if you're beginning to think like Paul in Romans, then you're beginning to think apocalyptically. You're beginning to envision the kingdom of God coming. And the kingdom of God in Romans 14, 17, to go to the other flank for a minute, is called righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, joy, and peace, in fact. Righteousness, peace, and joy, in that order, in the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're gaining a vision of an all-delivering triune God. From here, we can once again apply the clamp, then, of the right flank of Romans, specifically Romans 14. We've been doing that. The universal homardiology signaled in Romans 3, 9 to 18, 
And again in Romans 3.23, all sinned and keep coming short of the glory of God, being justified by grace on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Hint. You've got to throw a hint because this is controversial. Romans 10 speaks of a figure, a personage. Paul names him or her the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith says this. If you believe in your heart, And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will, future tense, be saved. So your faith in your heart and your confession of your mouth precedes your salvation. That's not Paul. I'll give you a hint. Romans 10.5, he said, Moses said, Romans 10.6, all the way through 17, he says, the righteousness of faith says, Romans 10, 18, he says, but I say. Who says they haven't heard? Their voice has gone into all the earth. Paul says, by grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. The righteousness that is justification by faith says if you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. But Paul says somewhere else, you can't even say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Is Paul mixed up like some scholars say, or is that not Paul? Romans 10 I'm starting to give it away a little bit here. Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? So there's some that haven't heard, and if a preacher doesn't get to them, they're going to hell. And you have every right to sit and mope and cry and be depressed and guilty and ashamed and self-condemned and recriminating yourself because you didn't go tell them, and they're going to hell because you didn't go tell them. Paul says there isn't a, if you want to make hearing the reason that you're saved, then he says, this is what I say, they've all heard. Romans 10, 18. And then he says, so let me tell you what Isaiah says about that. Isaiah says, in fact, Yahweh says through Isaiah, I'm doing myself a favor here. This is my rehearsal for Sunday if I do this. Isaiah says, and it says, it means Yahweh says through Isaiah, I was found by a people who weren't even looking for me. They weren't even seeking me. I was found by a people not seeking. And he said, I revealed myself to people who weren't even asking for me. Isaiah was very bold to say that. Why? Because Isaiah's gospel is a universalistic gospel. It isn't Luther's gospel, as it's so-called, where you're justified by human faith, where God gives you salvation as a reward for faith. Paul's gospel says God gives you salvation and then faith. Only by the Holy Spirit that you are given by God, by grace, 
Can you even say Jesus is Lord? So is there a contradiction? Some scholars said Paul's confused. I don't think he's confused. I just think you've got to have a discernment of spirits to find out who's talking where and who's talking when. The discernment of spirits is more important in the discerning of the interpretation of Scripture and who's doing the talking where and when because there are no quotes in there than it is to discern the spirits of people and where they're coming from. And that's a discerning, that's a gift of discernment of spirits too. That's an important gift to have. A pastor has to have it or he's already done. And sometimes pastors' wives have it when the pastor's too dumb to realize. But discerning of spirits means you can kind of tell where people are coming from. You can kind and it doesn't, it's not judgmental. In fact, you can discern where someone's coming from, as people like to say, and they'll never know that you discerned them. But you got to watch them for a little while because they will be converted. Others you discern, wow, this person's all in. This person is totally participating in the fidelity of Christ. But you don't make a judgment. You just discern. What we have to do in the scriptures is discern who's talking. If you have the gift of discernment of spirits, you're not going to say Paul was confused. You're going to say, oh, I see. This is what Paul was against, not what he said. He's very, Paul is really clear. He's not a politician. He really is clear. He's not a politician who says, let's be clear. He just is clear. So, I almost gave away the story there, but not quite. Read it yourself, though. Moses said, the righteousness of faith says, but I say. Paul's not talking about the righteousness of faith. He's talking about the righteousness of God. The gospel is an apocalypse of the righteousness of God. From faithfulness, God's faithfulness, to faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness. And so you're saved by grace through faithfulness, but that's not from yourselves. That's not of yourselves. So this other guy is saying, and he's not the teacher, but it already, somebody, so Paul never really confronted the justification by faith crowd. That didn't come till the Reformation. No, they were around when Paul was around. He was surrounded by oppositions, all kinds of different things. But when he wrote Ephesians as a tabula rasa, when he wrote from scratch, as it were, and he just told these people what happened to him, they found themselves in Christ. The sermon was proclaimed. They said, hey, we're in Christ. And Paul says, this is what happened to you in Ephesians 2.8. You were saved by grace and through faithfulness, and that was not of yourselves. It isn't that you have a faith that's of yourselves and God rewards you with salvation. That's what this character called the righteousness of faith says. In Romans 10.6. And they can even quote scriptures from Deuteronomy. And from Isaiah. And from Joel. But you've got to discern whether those scriptures are quoted or misquoted. All that a man has he will trade. Skin for skin. Everything a man has he'll trade for his own life. That's scripture. But you better know who's talking there. Not Stan. But Satan is talking there to God. Doesn't the scripture say he will bear you up? 
lest you dash your foot against your, a stone. Won't he send his angels to you? Psalm 91. Who's saying that? Better discern. That's Satan to Jesus who turns and rebukes him. He misinterprets and Jesus interprets properly and rebukes him. The whole story in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Luke 4 also, both. So from here, I want to do a surprise raid. Because if both Jews and Gentiles are concluded to be under sin, then let me ask you this. How can a Jewish saint be justified in judging a Gentile saint? And on the other hand, how can a Gentile saint be justified in despising or merely discounting his Christian Jewish sister or brother? So what's emerging here in this hemardiology is what Jesus said, let the one without sin throw the first stone. Or as the secular saying says, those who live in glass houses should not throw stones at all. It will make your heating bills go up. That's my addition to it. All were under sin and all were rectified by the righteousness of God. And in one real eternal sense, that already happened. Even now. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't mean it will be finished. When Revelation, the throne, the enthroned God said, it is done, he didn't say it will be done. He said, it's done. I'm making all things new, and it's done. It only has to be manifested yet. So here's a surprise raid into Roman center. Earlier, I suggested that all humanity are charged with being under sin. That's clear. That is clear from Romans 3, 9b. Paul, a teacher, see, Paul's gone from Wing Chun where it's a combat where they're in constant contact and you almost have to say, well, this phrase was Paul. You're, they're hitting each other like crazy. And then in 3.9, he goes back to jujitsu in his mixed martial arts rhetorical display of fighting. And he takes this teacher with him and he says, now you and I both know, we both preach that all are under sin, whether Jews or Gentiles. And even what the law says, it speaks to those under the law as much as it speaks to those without law. So, we both have to agree, and I think you will agree if I give you a cascade of verses from 310 to 18 that we're all, and then the teacher says, well, then you know what? Then the whole world has to shut its mouth before God. And Paul says, yeah, and you're part of the world. And furthermore, now God has revealed a righteousness apart from law altogether. And he goes on from 321 to 331 in what is the pivotal turn in Romans. So now there's another very difficult passage in Romans 4. What's he talking about there? Is Romans 4 talking about justification by faith? Or was Abraham called three chapters before that? And the Bible says as many as he called, those he also justifies. And those he justifies, he also glorifies. So when was Abraham justified? I say when he was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. He was called. 
God spoke to him. God appeared to him. It's hard to have God appear to you, call you, and then obey him and not be in, in his plan, his salvific plan. So what does it mean in Genesis fifteen six that he believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness? Does it mean that his faith saved him? Or does it mean that God considered his full trust in God's promise the rectitude that he wants for the Christian spiritual life? Good question. That was a good question. Thank you. I was talking to myself. So, let's do the raid now. I further indicated that all humanity are charged with being under sin, and that, of course, is apart from the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and the power in the Spirit, of course, we are all under sin. I further indicated that this means all are both enslaved to sin and complicit with it. Collude with it. And I said that means that complicity may either be willing or Unwilling. Romans 7, 7 to 25, which we're not going to get to tonight, only the prelude to it, illustrates that a person who is under Torah, under the law, aware of the law, a student of the law, is also under sin. So you, teacher, if you say that you're no longer under sin because you're circumcised in due Torah, you have to deal with this reality that even though you know Torah and are under Torah, to be under Torah is to be under sin. So Torah, Torah, Torah. That's a movie reference. Now, when you read Mark, Jesus went away about 11 times to rest and and to get his head together. It's time for me to do that. Okay. Romans 7 to 7 to 25 illustrates by the speech and character that One who is under Torah, under the law, also is under sin, even though he or she may be unwillingly so because of the real inner desire to comply with the law. In my inner man, I really want to do the law with my mind. But with my whole being, my whole flesh, I sin against the law. So I want to do something very unusual, and it's a surprise. Let's go to the prelude to this speech in Romans 7, 1. And I've translated it. Romans 7, 1, this is a surprise raid into the center. And we're supposed to be clamping in from two pincer movements. Well, we're taking a little force, an instant reaction force, out of our left flank and making a secret raid into the center into a part of the center, Romans 7. Here it is. Paul says this. I'm speaking now to those who know the law, know Torah. Know that most of the time he uses the word law here. He's talking about Torah, the law of Moses. Then he says, and he's a little bit sarcastic here, are you not knowing? You who know Torah, are you not knowing or ignorant, brothers and sisters, that the law lords it over. And he used the word curiuo, which is the verbal form of lord, curios, curiuo. It's a lord over you. 
But as Isaiah 26, 13 says, once we had other lords over us, and that includes the law. So he says, are you not knowing, are you ignorant, brothers and sisters, that the law, the law Torah, lords it over a person? Small l, curio, lords it over you. But I love this phrase, only for the time in which he lives. Only for the time that you're alive. Hint, hint, you're crucified with Christ. Never, ah. Now look at what Paul's doing here. Remember Psalm 143, 2b, which he cited and expanded in Romans 3.20. He says, no person living, says the psalmist, no person alive can be justified in God's view. Here, Paul's still got that in his mind because he expands it in Romans 3.20, and now he's making a secret invasion into Romans 7 where he says, that don't you know that the law lords it over you, but only as long as you're alive. But he'd already said that as long as you're alive, you can't be justified in God's view. So if you cannot be justified as long as you're alive, and if you're under the law for only as long as you're alive, then you can't be justified by the law and by being under the law. That's another Lord. And here the one who is under the law is being under it as long as he or she lives. So, many O's, three dots, as long as one is under the law, one is alive. As long as one is alive, one is under the law. Hint, hint, you died and your life is hid with Christ and God. Justification means you died. So, Jesus is the Lord who can justify. The law is the Lord, small l, that cannot justify you or rectify a person or give a person life. Jesus is the Lord. Guess what? Only by the Holy Spirit could I say that. You don't say, Jesus is Lord, and God says, I'm going to reward you with salvation. Thank you so much. I agree with you. He is Lord. You just agreed with me. I'm going to reward you with salvation. That's not Paul. That ain't the gospel. And so, We're even having conversions in this room tonight. It's a strange thing. I even had a couple myself this week. Once the Torah itself was one of the lords that we were under. The Torah can't justify you. Jesus can and does. Once the Torah itself was one of those lords with a small l in Isaiah 26, 13, and... It lorded over us. It lorded over us not because it was sin that reigns over all. The law is not sin. Paul goes on to explain that later. I'm not saying Torah is sin, but I'm saying that those who are under the law are under sin because sin hijacked Torah. That's how evil and exceedingly sinful sin is, he goes on to explain. Sin is so sinful that it actually hijacked Torah to make Torah 
agitate the Adamic ontology and the lusts of the flesh. And you know what those lusts are? Not sensual or sexual that Paul is dealing with here. Those lusts are the desire, the passionate desire to be better than your fellow, to be preeminent over others. So the law is a Lord that cannot justify. Jesus is the Lord who can do and has done our justification. So this serves to show that the law or Torah is now controlled by sin and sin took advantage of the law, even hijacked it for its own purpose. This serves to show that sin is exceedingly sinful. The Torah, which was oriented toward righteousness, this is headed to a climax. It's headed toward a, toward a big 10-4, Romans 10-4. Christ is the end of the Torah for righteousness because God has made him to be righteousness for us. Now, all of this is going to be explained. I'm deliberately challenging this congregation the past few nights, last night and tonight, and a couple messages in the future. So that you can, I'm forcing you to stretch a little bit, in other words, because your capacity is being created for greater truth right now. The Torah, which was oriented toward righteousness, was sidetracked by sin to be oriented to sinfulness. In fact, in another place, he goes into Leviticus 18.5, where Paul says that Moses says, those who do these things will live by them. And that was the original intent of the law for righteousness. But sin hijacked that law. So now God has made Christ to be for us righteousness. And that's the point of the whole gospel. Christ himself has been made to be righteousness for us. Jeremiah gave us a hint. He said, the time will come when Israel will dwell safely and Yahweh will be called Adonai to Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6. Torah is not the Lord, our righteousness. Jesus is the Lord, our righteousness. Adonai to Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. The message of Romans really is simple. Again, when all the sap is boiled down, we're left with the quality, sweet syrup that Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead. Romans 7.2. For example, Paul says, he's, this is the sense of it now. For example, a married woman is bound by Torah, that is a directive of Torah, Moses' law, to her husband while he is alive. Again, here I have it, while he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the Torah's directive that deals with husbands. Consequently, then, he says, if while her husband is still alive, she gives herself to another man, she will be called an adulterer. And this goes both ways, of course. But if her husband dies, she's free from that directive or that Torah, that law. And she will not be called an adulterer if she marries another man. Now, there's confusion here sometimes with people. I want, you to, I want to do this pastorally. Paul is not concerned here 
with other legitimate reasons for divorce, which he deals with elsewhere. Even when he says, the Lord doesn't say this, but I say it, meaning by apostolic authority. If you're married to an unbeliever and he goes, let him go. Today, we'd have to say, if your husband beats you, divorce him. I would say that. If someone says her husband beats her and said, what should I do? I'd say, divorce the son of a bitch and do it quickly. And he might get converted someday. So that's not the Lord, but I say that. And then I have to bear responsibility for saying that. And there's a lot of other reasons that Paul communicates. Jesus even says, except it be for fornication or for adultery, Matthew 5.32. So again, don't, I don't want anyone here to get this guilt thing to come over you. And even if it was for the wrong reason, there's a little thing that Bi- the Bible talks about rather frequently. It's called forgiveness. And so divorce is not an unforgivable sin. That's all my pastoral heart. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't I sweet? Just like syrup, a syrup-sucking stump jumper from Vermont. He is on, now, what Paul's doing here, though, is he's on the move to make a powerful point with regard to the law and Christ. So people that get all wound up in the, in the Torah of marriage miss the point here. What he's doing is he's on the move to make a point that reaches its climax with the big 10-4 all the way in Romans 10-4. But now let's go 7-4. He says, in an analogous way, my brothers and sisters, you were put to death. This isn't unlike Colossians 3.3, you died. This isn't unlike Romans 6.6, consider yourself to have died. This is not unlike Deuteronomy 32.39, I, the Lord, kill and I make alive. He just simply says, for I want you to get the, the idea here, in an analogous way to the marriage Torah, or the Torah of marriage, you were put to death with regard to Torah, the law. Through, and I love it because here it comes, I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says you were killed or you were put to death through the body of the Messiah. You know what that means? The crucified and dead body of Messiah Jesus. You were also killed. The Christ here, to Christu. Christ in him crucified is all that Paul intends to communicate to them. This is the sweet syrup when all the sap is boiled down. Once I was a sap, but I get all boiled down, and we are in Christ. We are new people in Christ. So that he says, look at what he he goes on to say in 7.4, so that you may belong to another man. That's Jesus, the Son of Man, of course, Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.23, he says, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. In Romans 1.6, he said, to all those in Rome who belong to Jesus Christ, he picks up the same strand. And then he says, namely, the one who has been raised from the dead. You belong to another man. You died to the Torah. You belong to another man, namely, the one who has been raised from the dead in order to bear fruit. Have kids, bear fruit for God. The idea here is that now that we're married to Christ and the union will be fruitful. And the fruit is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, just like the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
It is the experience of the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. To go to the other flank, Romans 14, 17. It is the multiplication of the children of God right now in this passing evil age through a new kind of missionary enterprise that goes around and tells everybody, awake from the dead, it's finished, and let Christ shine on you. Romans 7, 5, for you see, Paul says, he's the, this is the teacher phrase, the gar, explanatory gar, G-A-R. For you see, as long as we were existing in the flesh, that's the Adamic ontology, the term I use to make it easy here and explicit. For you see, as long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology or in the flesh, is what he says, sinful passions, and these again are not just sensual or sexual passions, But the intense desire for preeminence over others is what he's really hammering here in Romans. He said, sinful passions operated through the law, through the Torah, in every part of our body. And he uses the body as a pars prototo of the whole being of man. The lusts aren't just in the body. They're in the mind, the soul, the whole being. So he says, again, 7-5, for you see, as long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology, in Adam I'll die, sinful passions operated or functioned or received their incentive through the law in every part of our body, our whole being. This goes way jumping ahead. You see, you've got to embrace the whole of the epistle. I'm trying to. Romans 12-1, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. The body is the whole being of the believer. So that sin won't reign. So, but notice what he says, to bear fruit for death. When we were under the law, as long as we were existing in the Adamic ontology, he's talking to people who know the law. He's talking to the Jewish Christians who were once under the law. We were under the law and operated, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of our body to bear fruit for death. Here's my harvest. I hand it over to you, ruler over me, death. Death is another power who rules over us until the stronger man, the crucified Lord with his resurrection life, attacks him and strips him of his arsenal and his possessions. This is apocalyptic thinking. So Romans 7, 6, and we'll close with this. But now, oh, what a word. Now. Remember, we replaced already, not yet or now and not yet, as a mantra, which is a good one, with a better one. Even now, but then completely, is better than now and not yet. Even now, but then completely. But now, even now, I put it in brackets for myself, yes, even now, we have been released from the Torah as it's, and I put this in brackets just for expansion, as illustrated in the Torah of marriage, the law of marriage to a former husband and married to another, the crucified and risen Lord, in a marriage which divorce and separation are impossible. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing can separate us, and that word separate is the same word for divorce. We are now joined to a man, the man Christ Jesus, who has freed us from sin and death and from the law that 
focuses on and gives incentive to death, but now we're married to a man, the man Christ Jesus, from whom divorce is absolutely unthinkable and impossible. Even if we remain faithless, he remains faithful because he can't deny himself. So let's do it again, 7-6. But now we have been released from Torah, having died to what was holding us, having died to what was holding us, enslaving us. We could even say holding us back. I knew a woman once, and she actually said to me, her husband died, and she said, and the husband was abusive. And she stayed with him all for 30-some years. She said to me, he held me back. And I'm thinking, that was an understatement. But she started to live again. And she's a wonderful Christian woman. She loves God. She loves Jesus Christ. And this illustrates this. So now we have been released from Torah, from the old marriage, having died to what was holding us, holding us back keeping us down. Some marriages are just a mockery of marriage. Some weddings are a mockery of marriage because they're already married. Come on, let's be honest. Now, I'm old. I can say stuff that I wanted to say for 40 years now. I can say it now. I can't wait till I'm Moltman's age. He's about like 89 or something. I'll say whatever the hell I want then. So, having died to what was holding us back so that we may serve, we may serve, we may serve in what? The never antiquated newness, the never made obsolete newness is what it means, the newness of the spirit. It's a life in the spirit that's always new. It's always like it just started to happen. It just started to happen. It never gets antiquated. It never gets old. It's always new. And it does one thing all the time. It always exceeds our expectations. Even when our expectations are great of him, he still exceeds them. So we operate now, once we operated in, under the law, to bear fruit for death, but now, yes, even now, we've been released from the Torah, having died to what was holding us back, so that we may serve in the never antiquated newness of the Spirit. Remember Romans 2.29, which is also a bellwether of pneumatology, and not in the obsoleteness of the letter, which means the observance of the strictures of Torah in the power failure of the Adamic ontology. The Adamic ontology, by its very definition, is a power failure. So, you can't even come to church. We had a power failure. I said, finally, the weather's okay. But we had a power failure. So we're now a little better equipped, and we close with this. We're a little better equipped to consider this thing called a speech in character in Romans 7, 7 to 25, which is a speech or a kind of biography, autobiography, of a person who is an unwilling accomplice of sin. As she or he wills with all his might to do good according to the law. This will continue to forward the universal homardiology 
so that even those under the law, even those under the law are complicit with sin, even though they're unwilling to be. So we're going toward a universal homardiology in which all the human race and Adam are under the power of sin and complicit with that power, whether willingly or unwillingly. This in turn will go to show that salvation itself is not a matter of one's own will. But of God who shows mercy, it is not of him that willeth. Do you get that point? That's Paul. Romans nine sixteen. It is not the one who wills. It is not from the one who wills. It is not from the one who runs human power. But of God who shows mercy. Romans 9.16. Mercy that he will have. He will have it. On all. Speaking theologically and biblically then. A universal homardiology yields sweetly. To a universal Christocentric soteriology which also goes far to undercutting the group biases that are currently prevalent among the saints in Rome and guess what that will do this will certainly aid and abet the mission of the gospel in all the world and it won't be this unless they hear how can they hear without a preacher So many have not heard. Paul says, you say many have not heard. I'm telling you, all have heard. Paul's not saying there, and this is a hint, this is tracks to run on for maybe Sunday even. Paul isn't saying the whole world has literally heard. He's saying if you're right and everyone has to hear and believe to be saved, then I'm telling you it's like everyone has heard and believed. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Remember Jeremiah 9.24 that's distilled throughout Romans? I execute mercy and judgment and righteousness in all the earth. Righteousness is his act of divine deliverance. He's done it. That's the gospel. That's good news. That's very good news. I think it's good news. And you know what? I believe it. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We believe and therefore we speak. We believe and therefore we speak. We don't confess and therefore receive. We receive and therefore believe. You have saved us and given us faith. This is the gospel. Grant this ministry, this group of people here tonight, all of us, myself included, all those who belong willingly to Tetelestai Phalanx, whoever's speaking here is irrelevant. The message is God's message through the messengers. Let all of us be given and granted the ability to discern spirits even when we read the Bible especially when we read the Bible. 
Let us know, not out of fear, that when we read the Bible, we are engaged in a dangerous enterprise. Because it is so easy to not discern the spirit and even the speaker and therefore be deceived into thinking, for example, there's an everlasting hell, which the Old Testament doesn't teach, the New Testament doesn't teach, the whole Bible doesn't teach. But an Egyptian and Greek mythology teaches, and it sneaked into the minds of people, not the Bible writers, because the parables that Jesus spoke were to subvert that mythology, not to forward it. Grant us discerning of spirits, if not as a spiritual gift, as a necessity in our time, especially when we read the Bible, and especially for those of us who have taken on the absolutely ridiculously dangerous enterprise of interpreting it. I ask this with all seriousness and with absolute confidence in Jesus' name. We thank you.